Hello there guys and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chits Chat. This week I am joined by Scott Weatherly of the 20th Century Geek and Stories Out of Time and Space podcasts. Now if you're unfamiliar with Scott, obviously you can go check out his podcasts, but you can also check out episode 107 of Genuine Chit Chat, because that's when Scott came on the podcast initially, where we tried to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, but we both ended up getting distracted and talking about sci-fi crossovers and special effects and all kinds of other things. So if you haven't already listened to episode 107, go check that out. But for this episode, it is focusing on the fantasy horror author H.P. Lovecraft. Now this chat is split into two parts, so this is part one, part two will be out next week for all of you usual listeners. Anyone who is a supporter on Patreon, which you can do for only £2 or $3 a month, um, have already got access to part two of this chat. So for clarity, Patreons get early access to part two of this chat, and next week when part two of this chat drops for you regular listeners, part three of the chat will drop for the Patreon listeners, and part three will drop the following week for you guys. Just for clarity, part three isn't about Lovecraft at all, it's about a completely different subject matter. We talk about Moon Knight, which is why I've split it into three parts. In brief, this conversation starts talking about Lovecraft's life, including his bigotry, relationships and death, and then Scott walks me through some of his writing style, the Lovecraftian horror itself, the creation of the ancient beings like Cthulhu, what happened to his works after he died, and that sort of thing. Um, And really, that's all I'm going to say for now. There will be a quick promo to play, and then, and after that, the conversation will get started. So I'll be back at the end of this chat just to talk about what you can expect from part two and the other things that I've been getting up to and whatnot. And just a reminder, if anyone is a Patreon, make sure you go check out this episode on that feed because you get to listen to the full one hour 40 minute discussion on hp lovecraft uninterrupted anyway guys thank you so much for listening as always i appreciate each and every one of you and i'll talk to you at the end my name's scott weatherly and i'm the host of 20th century geek the podcast that looks at all aspects of geek and pop culture from the 20th century whether by myself or with an amazing guest 20th century geek delivers Full movie series retrospectives, classic comic reviews and discussions, interviews with those that created and contributed to 20th century pop culture, and everything else in between. 20th Century Geek is your one-stop shop for retro geek talk. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all other podcast catchers. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. I am here today with Scott Weatherly of the 20th Century Geek Podcast and also Stories Out of Time and Space. Scott, last time you came on the show, we had a plan. And the plan was to, <laughs> was to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, because I don't know much about it, and a friend of mine really got into it. So we did the podcast, we settled down, we started on a tangent about sci-fi, uh, I think special effects and crossovers, and we spoke for over two hours, mm. and we didn't even touch Lovecraft. Yeah. So this time, we're going to start, I've, I was going to ask you some other questions, but no, I know what you and I both like, even at the start of this podcast, we've been talking for 25 minutes without pressing record. So yes. let's, without doing anything else, people are going to know who you are. Hello, Scott. H.P. Lovecraft. Right. I know. Yes. This, I'm going to basically be the, the the audience here because I imagine most people have the same peripheral knowledge that I have, which is he is a prolific writer. Um, he created some mm-hmm. of the most 
important things that impacted and still impacting pop culture and sci-fi and that sort of thing today. Mm-hmm. He created Cthulhu, mm. which is probably the biggest thing that people know of that's his. Um, and also, he wasn't a very nice person for the most part. So that's about everything I know. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a difficult character. To say he wasn't a, he wasn't a nice person is probably a little bit of a misnomer. Like he, his mm. politics, let's put it that way, weren't... Um, progressive uh yeah yeah impressive but and i I want to be clear that i'm not going to be making excuses for his politics however i'm not gonna say like you know of the of the day that they really weren't he was he was a bigot and he was a racist like there's no doubt about that um however it's interesting like where it comes from um because lovecraft as a person is an interesting bloke he was a very sort of um he had aspirations and he had a self-image that was never really fulfilled within his own lifetime. Um, he come from he came from a, a well-to-do family. You know, his background and his history, his family were of money. Uh, they came from uh, originally they were English. Uh, you know, they came across and emigrated to America, and um, there was this sort of there was this idea of him coming from not quite aristocracy but well-to-do mm-hmm. stock. Yeah, and so he had this impression of himself as being. Uh, relatively superior to a lot of people. And it all went to pot, basically, because his dad, um, when he was very young, uh, his dad Mm. died of syphilis. Um, And it's important, that's important, mainly because his dad was uh, committed to uh, a hospital and then eventually sort of an insane asylum. And it was kept from him. Uh, for many, many years, it was basically, oh, your, your, your dad's had a, had a nervous breakdown, a sort of stress and all this other stuff, rather than, no, no, he was out doing stuff with, you know, ladies of the night and caught syphilis. Um, and so he had this thing. And then eventually, so he was raised by his mother and two aunts in a very sort of matriarchal, you know, very sort of um, matriarchal uh, household and really doted on as a kid. So he was quite a sickly kid and all this other stuff, apparently, allegedly. But although he was sort of, raised by these women and you'd think that would sort of garner some sort of um liberal outcome not at all i think this is still you'll remember this was sort of the early 19 you know sorry the yeah early early 20th century um and so he his education because he was sickly and so that sort of came from book reading did a lot of book reading God was clever you know like um really into astro- uh, astronomy and astrology um sciences and all this other stuff but very very book learned very very book learned it all came from from reading not hugely worldly um lived in uh, providence rhode island and that was it that's what he wanted to <laughs> there was all these aspirations of being worldly and he he's almost like you know you get the stereotypical geek that you and i are very nerdy in many ways but that, that idea of sort of like love lives in his mom's basement and doesn't go out much that that is actually lovecraft like, you know, he, you know, wasn't apparently not great in social circumstances, but incredibly intelligent. Um, but what he would do, he would sort of go out of an evening and walk because it was quieter at night and admire the architecture and then would write about it and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, he was just an odd guy. He, he just sort of had this sort of uh, closed world view that was garnered from this idea. First, of his, his superiority and then this sort of like closed politics that, you know, I'm better than everyone. I can't really know. If, if he'd been born in the sort of like early, if he'd been born a century or more earlier, he'd have loved it. You know, you get this feeling that he would have loved to have been touting around as a gentleman 
of you know sort of um late 1700s sort of late 18th century early 19th century sort of england somewhere um so yeah he, he just sort of you know he, he just sort of a man at a time in in many respects but his politics <laughs> he, he are confused because he openly in, in 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 you know if you read some of his work um his his racial prejudices are, are blatantly there in his work uh, but a story called uh, the horror at red hook sorry i know I'm, i know peripheral footnotes but the, the no, stranger is that one yeah. or the strangers is that is that one of his or maybe that's the word you're talking about, um, and maybe I'm misinterpreting. But it's basically someone moves in next door, no, and they're uh, a black family, and it's bad in some way. That's the vague. My friend like poorly explained this to me when I was drunk. So I've got very little that that's yeah. the thread. There's one called the stranger, right? That's what I'm thinking of. Which is about that, but yeah, horror at Red Hook is very much like. Um, and then there's another one called. Um, notes the the facts concerning the late Arthur Jerome and his family, and these all sort of come down to so the, the, the horror Red Hook is about, um, and we'll get into his time in New York. Um, it's basically sort of a, a neighborhood in in New York, and he sort of says, "Oh, it's where all the immigrants go to live." And then basically, there's a page worth of stuff where he's like, "Yeah, here's the descriptions I have of all these immigrants. None of them are good." <laughs> And you sort of read it, and, and you read it now, and you're like, mm, "This doesn't, this doesn't work, does it? Really? Mm, it makes you feel very uncomfortable." And then underneath all this is there's a there's a cult that is sacrificing children to um, an a eons old demon for uh, immortality. Uh, and then the other one is well, that facts concerning the late Arthur Jerome and his family is about a guy who has an odd appearance, and eventually, sort of, the story starts with him killing himself. Hmm. He goes out and burns himself on the moors. And it's then you sort of backtrack and you get flashbacks of his history. And what it basically boils down to is that his great, great granddad uh, had sex with an ape in the jungles of, and the jungles of Africa. <laughs> I see. Uh, and so he's had this sort of like this ape gene as it's gone down the, the, the line, but this thing of it being sort of like apes and Africa is sort of like hammered home throughout. Mm, and you're I like, I, I get what you're saying. Um, you know, like Mr. Lovecraft, I get what you're saying. You don't have to keep trying to, you know, hammer this metaphor home of apes and Africa. It it doesn't, it, yeah, it doesn't bode well. The good stories, that's the thing. Like the, the horror in them is good. Maybe not the facts concerning the late Arthur, Jerome, but um, the horror of Red Hook's a good story. Like mm-hmm. It works well. But his, his politics and prejudices definitely come through. However... He was clearly confused because he was at one point people would say he's an anti-Semite. Yeah, but he also married a Jewish woman. You know, oh, okay, well, he was anti-gay. Yeah, well, he might have been, but also one of the, the people he corresponded with on a regular basis was a, an outed gay gentleman in the 20s. Hmm. Didn't seem to have a problem with that. And there's, you just get this thing of like, he may have had these politics, but it was almost like he, he was never sort of really that bothered by it. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was it was almost like um, he believed it, but he believed it because he felt like he had to believe it. Right, I see. Rather than you know, I don't think he actually really cared about politics in a great way. It was probably uh, almost he was so like with his writing. Say as a, the way I'm kind of thinking about this is someone who cares so much about their writing, so cares about putting the story together. Almost it, it's almost like I think it's almost like a granddad telling you a story from the war, but using all the wrong 
Speci- like if they went to the Vietnam War and using all the horrible terminology and then you could bring him up and he goes well it doesn't matter does it but it, that doesn't make it right but no. it's almost so blasé about these racist undertones but it, because he isn't fussed about that he's fussed about this other story and the racist undertones are the parts that obviously especially nowadays get pulled out rather than I think that's vague yeah, sort of it's always yeah. I mean it's, it's always been there and there's always been a bit of a concern about it and and it, it's weird that in a one of the one of the weird things is, I mean, we've recently just had two Dr. Seuss books taken out of publication because of their depiction of um, Asian uh, characters. Okay, I wasn't aware. Okay, well, yeah, so it's been a bit of a hoo-ha. There's, you know, if, everyone on the right is like, oh, they're cancelling Dr. Seuss. And you go, not, not really, just two books out of, like, hundreds. <laughs> um, but the thing is, there's an estate. There's a Dr. Seuss estate. There is a, there's a um, an organisation that watches over and sort of the, the legacy of that 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 uh, author in his, in his content there's none of that for lovecraft mm-hmm. lovecraft is pretty much i think at this point all in the public domain right there's probably a couple that aren't you know of the stories but mostly they're all in the public domain there is no one so it's hard to cancel lovecraft you know there are people that have pointed out and and even programs most recently lovecraft country mm-hmm. was originally a book and is now a show is that is is confronting it head on, you know, but you can't really cancel something when it's in the public. It's like a virus. It's out there. now. Mm. <laughs> Lovecraftian horror sort of exists. And luckily though, it's his mythos and the Lovecraftian horror elements that have survived that, that, that breed and, and go on rather than his, um, you know, his vile right-wing politics. <laughs> um, and I think that's just worth noting. I mean, you know, it's not. I don't want to focus on that mm-hmm. predominantly. But like you say, yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't great. But I think he was also rather not say confused, but I think he was probably a bit more liberal than than he would probably even admit to himself. Yeah, and I will say as well to clarify, um, yourself and uh, my friend Reese, who's been on the show a couple times, um, and I think I've spoken to someone else. Every person I spoke to about Lovecraft, they always say. His writing, so much of it, there's so much genius in there, but I've never spoken to anyone about Lovecraft and they don't say, but. And yeah. then the whole thing about his politics were off. There's so many things when you read his books, you've got to be aware that when you read certain parts, they at the time did not translate well. Today, they definitely do not translate yeah. well. If yeah. you can, so we, we're, we're both clarifying here to any listeners, you know, we're, we're not here to talk about the politics of H.P. Lovecraft, but I'm glad that Scott, you, you confirmed that aspect of it because that is one of the big sort of asterisk marks you have to put yes. by Lovecraft by saying, look, we're not saying his politics are right, but it's undeniable how his writing has impacted culture. And that is, in essence, what we're going to talk about sort of uh, yeah. more so in that regard. I, I agree. And I, you, you do have to take into consideration that when you read all this stuff, that it was written, the, the, the two, well, actually, there's three things you've got to sort of take into consideration. His politics, so who he was and his background. Um, the era it was being written in, as being sort of like, you know, yeah, his politics were, you know, like you say, weren't great then, they're worse now. But even so, there's a lot of this is is written to be um, for the people of that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more than that, these a lot of these stories were written for pulp magazines. And that that's the key thing. And you said about how important he is. Mm-hmm. And he is. Like, Lovecraft is probably one of the most important people in the history of uh, the development and evolution of horror. And sci-fi in that respect. However, he wasn't successful during his lifetime. He had book, you know, stories printed, 
mostly in uh, you know tales to astonish or or weird tales in these magazines pulp magazines and they were enough to sort of make a bit of a living but he was living in poverty for the most part of his life mm-hmm. um and he wanted that big break he wanted to be taken seriously he wanted to be you know, I mean, you see it in some of these other writings, like these short stories, uh, then, you know, birth, the, the larger stories, um, you know, The Mountains of Madness, um, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, um, some of these longer stories where he's really trying to, to, to try for something better and bigger and that sort of thing. I mean, it, never, it never landed. It wasn't actually until after his death that a few people that were fans and were devotees of him really pushed his legacy. Um, and again, it wasn't probably until the late fifties and early sixties when all of his work started to be republished in paperbacks that people refound him and were like, Oh, this stuff's great. <laughs> I love mm. this. And he really became the Cthulhu mythos really took off probably in the sixties and, and, um, and then into the seventies and stuff with the pub, uh, the paperback boom. So, um, yeah, he's, he's a sad character. You know, died early. Yeah, I just looked it up. That's what I was. You saw me looking down and stuff. I, yeah. I looked it up. It was born eighteen ninety and yeah, died, died nineteen thirty-seven. Wonderful. Yeah, yes, of, can, of cancer. Oof, yeah, could have could have lasted. Could have lived longer, but didn't trust or like doctors, so refused to go see them. Ah. Um, <laughs> so, sort of brought on himself. Really can't. You know, <laughs> it's their fault. My own thinking here, sorry, with Lovecraft, obviously mm. um, we'll get into how his writing style and stuff is shortly because I know that's a very interesting thing as well mm. and how his story lengths as well varied so wildly. But is are there like, because are there books about his life? I presume there are. There are like biographies or that sort of thing. There's, yeah, there's a couple. That if you ever really want to know about Lovecraft, if you want to get, there's a three volume ver- uh, book by a guy called S.T. Joshi mm-hmm. um, who is is like the go-to Lovecraft um, aficionado. Like he's written these books and they are wonderful. I've, 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 you know, I've read some bits and pieces he's written, not the whole volumes, but like articles and shorter pieces he's written. But more than that, he actually re-edited a lot of the, the stories to sort of like, you know, to polish them up a bit. And that is now sort of the accepted text. I see. Um, and you know, that's not so he hasn't changed massively, but he just, just tidied them up a bit. So yeah. Yeah, S.T. Joshi. If you ever want to, sort of, if you Google him and Lovecraft, like you'll find loads of stuff about him. So that that's the the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, you talk, you talk about his writing style. Um, I mean, what would you think of when you you sort of think Lovecraft? What do you know of his writing style then? Well. When I think of Lovecraft, the first thing I think of is Cthulhu, but I blame that partly because that's partly South Park because I well, I watched an episode of South Park Cthulhu's quite in it, and then I was like, "What's this Cthulhu guy?" And I went down like rabbit hole by H.P. Lovecraft, and I was like, "This is not one of those easy, yeah. you know." Sometimes when you see a reference to something in South Park or Rick and Morty, whatever, you Google it and it goes, "Oh, this was a line in a film once." And you go, "Okay." Mm. You try and quickly have a little Google search late at night about H.P. Lovecraft. You could spend weeks on the internet learning about yeah. it. So I kind of I looked at them and I stared at it and went. I see. <laughs> Didn't look at it again. Um, but my friend Reese, he's um, he read quite uh, one of the sort of collected volumes, and he said his writing. There's two aspects of the writing style which we can tackle first. There's either the actual style of how he wrote things themselves, or actually the length of a lot of the stories. And I think the way he wrote is probably the interesting part because what I vaguely know is, and this is layman's terms, how what I'm remembering what Reese told me is essentially people of that time 
if you go back a certain amount of decades or even centuries, there was a type of writing style that was used like centuries before Lovecraft. And by the time of Lovecraft's day, that writing style wasn't really done anymore. And then Lovecraft started doing it. And even at the time, people were like, why is he writing in this weird old style? Yes. And that's the vague, that's all I really know about that specific. It, it's tr- if you were to write, you know, it's a phrase to use it's very purple prose like you know mm, yeah um you know lovecraft never met four words he didn't like to describe in 12 <laughs> i see that that sort of thing i mean to to be fair though like it's beautiful you know when he again it's when he gets it right um it's it's so good and it's almost like poetic uh in in the way it does but the vocabulary um when i first read lovecraft uh, when I first into my, in my teens, uh, picked up again. I was the picked up some paperbacks, and you get some stories. You say about the length, and they, they are quite short. Some of them are very short, and they get you know longer, and they do vary in length. And there's a couple of stories. You know, you read the first couple, like Dagon or the Hound, or uh, I'm I think I'm going to check now some of the early ones, and you go, ah, yeah, I get what this is. You know, um, just check some of those earlier ones. Mm-hmm. Got my big book of Lovecraft here. Yeah. Yeah, the tomb. That's a good one. Um, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, um, and then 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 you or Cats of Ulthar. That's another good one. So you get those, and you're a bit like I sort of get it, okay. And then like you know, they're but they're very straightforward. They're relatively straightforward. I mean, the Cats of Ulthar, for example, is about a horrible pair of people that get eaten by cats. No, oh, okay. But they're all sort of straightforward. And then all of a sudden you take a step into it, and you get uh, stories like the uh, the Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath. Which is literally as it sounds. It's I was about a, to it's, say it's the it's a dream quest. Like some of the the uh, descriptions in it are really bizarre, and that's there's a one called the Silver Ship, which is about a, a, a guy going up on a silver ship that was a cloud, and it goes off to this place, and it's really bizarre. And after a while, you sort of get to a point where some of the vocabulary, like I've got okay, I've got to stop. Where's that dictionary? Or where's dictionary.com? What does this word mean in some of the descriptions? So it's not you before we were talking about some of the comics we read and you said there's the thinking comics and there's the sort of like, you know, the, the fun junk food comics, junk, junk food comics, which is, you know, not to, to, to sort of piss on anyone that's written the comics, but you can absorb them. They're just there for, you know, they're sort of like punchy, punchy and really good fun. Yeah. Lovecraft is not punchy, punchy love you know, or good fun. <laughs> like, if you're going to sit down to read a Lovecraft, if you're going to sit down and read Lovecraft, like you are sitting down to read Lovecraft, like, and hopefully you'll be absorbed into it. But yeah, so one of the things he loves to do, um, and he had you say about his style, he had lots of styles. He went through different periods. People consider it like his, like the, his development or evolution, and it's quite clear that he was heavily influenced by uh, two two key people, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. Who's you talk about his writing style? It's Edgar Allan Poe that writing style that early early eighteenth century sort of. Uh, sorry, early 19th century uh, writing style that that he tries to emulate. Um, I mean, if you ever read, I don't know if you ever read any Poe. If I you read, okay, if you read the first paragraph of the Fall of the House of Usher, all right, it's probably about seven or eight lines. It's one sentence. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's yeah, it, you know, and uh, I've got I could read you some somewhere, but it's that sort of thing. Um, and, and and he loved that, and that's that purple prose. Um, and the other one was um, Lord Dunsany, who was a, a sort of a, 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 conte- a sort of a contemporary of his time, a little bit earlier, but wrote very sort of like Byron-esque, romantic sort of uh, language and all that sort of thing. And so he fell into that. So his first couple of his first belt of stories is that, mm-hmm. but there's horror in there, and you get like Dagon and the tomb and and 
things like that. But you do get these the dream quest and the silver the silver ship and uh, these others, and then the 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 mythos stuff starts to take hold. You see bits and pieces of it coming in. Um, if I remember rightly, because looking at you get this sort of like because a lot of it is like fantasy. His early stuff is fantasy, like the cats of Ulfa, like I said, uh, the white ships or not the silver ship, the white ship, uh, the transition of Juan Romero. Um, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, all these stories are sort of like, there's, there's elements of science and stuff there, but it's very fantasy-based in this sort of romanticism. Mm. And then he meets and marries his wife, uh, Sonia Green. And Sonia's a, she's a Jewish woman from a Jewish family, so this again puts his paid to this idea of him being a, an anti-Semite, which is, you know, people are like, yeah, he's he's confused or he, he didn't really, you know, believe his own politics. But she was ambitious, and she was a writer and a journalist, and so she moved them from Providence, Rhode Island, to New York. And he absolutely, excuse the language, but fucking hated it. <laughs> um, he wrote, he was a profuse letter writer, um, wrote l- hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters to people, including people like Robert Block and Robert E. Howard. Um, you know, um, quick side note, he wrote a letter. He was co- he was corresponding with this with this person. And the person was like, well, when you're, you know, when you're available, I think they were in Florida, uh, when you're available, you should come and visit and spend the summer. Turns out it's a 16-year-old boy. Doesn't stop Lovecraft. Turns up for two weeks. <laughs> All right, then. But, but in the day, that was fine. He, and he became incredibly close with this lad, and they became like a mentor and, and you know, student it's kind what, of relationship. It's, it's one stuff. of those weird things where, like, we're not, not, not Nambler here, you know, the National Association of Man-Boy Love. That's a South yeah. Park reference. It is one of those weird things where, once again, not trying to, be a Lovecraftian apologist, but it's one of those things where it's like, if a, a grown-up man is corresponding with a 16-year-old boy, that is really weird. But that does not mean 100% of the time it is nefarious and damaging to both of them. I'm not saying yeah. people should do that, but it's no, no. it's one of those weird things, isn't it, where it's just like, that sounds strange. Well, it oh, came but nothing about, bad happened. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. No, but but it, it came about because the, I forget the, the lad's name, but it's worth Googling because it's an interesting story, but he sent him a, he sent Lovecraft a story. Mm. And, and so, and Lovecraft basically edited it and sent it back and said, "Yeah, something good here. Think about this." Oh, okay. And they just became friends. And you know, the age was irrelevant to Lovecraft. He, he just loved to talk. Like he wrote, like you know, like hundreds and hundreds of letters. Like you know, it was just a thing. But in his letters, whilst he's in New York, like they are, they, he is sort of like, "I hate this place. It's full of immigrants. It's dirty. It's it's closed in. I hate it." And you start to get like the stories, like the horror at Red Hook. Um, Shadow of Rinsmouth, all these stories about dirty people is the wrong word, but like what what I would consider to be like you know a polluted gene pool. So uh, it's clearly him venting this sort of repulsion that he felt. Mm. Um, and it, I mean, it should be noted that although he was married, I mean, she left him before they were divorced. I think she left in I've got it here. She left him in thirty three, but didn't divorce him. Well, she didn't, didn't divorce him. He died in thirty seven, so there were four years separated. Okay, but um. He he sort of like hey, yeah he hated it that much that he was just venting all the time. So she was like basically like bugger off, like you know I can't be doing with you. Um, but he yeah he t- he vented it into his writing, um, and it, it really comes through. But it made him turn a corner, and that's when you really get like the Cthulhu mythos and and all these other stories. So it sort of weirdly benefited him <laughs> in, in you know in being in being there. So. Um, but that sort of like the, leads him into the third stage. You get this sort of like um, before New York, in New York, after New York. Right. 
And then and after New York, and he goes back to Providence, sort of like he, he feels free and he just really focuses on his work. And that's where you get everything that you've talked about. The growth of the Cthulhu mythos comes post New York. Mm. And it sort of he he sort of defines and refines his writing to be what we now know as Lovecraftian horror. So it took a while, but but he got there. Um, that's not to say these stories before weren't good. I love some of the early stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so have you ever read any Lovecraft? No, I haven't. No, um, Reese said to me about reading some of it, but it was it's one of those things that one of the reasons I want to speak to you about it was because it's one of those things that does really interest me. And right at the end, if I remember, I'll ask you for like a little reading list and I'll make a note of it mm. and things of just sort of because the thing is, what I heard when Reese he's got he had like a collected volume or something and he said that it's it's like he said it's weird because it's basically anthology stories but there is like common threads through them and he was like yeah when he says the one he was reading he was like i was i was because i asked the, the basic questions i was like, oh, is cthulhu in it and he said yes and no and i was like what do you mean he said there's not one big you know 300 page story about cthulhu it's not like that mm. he said there was like there'll be one story and it would end by someone seeing some being and that'd be the end of it and then stories and stories and stories and stories and stories later there'll be someone who's just seen the same being and it's how their life is impacted by seeing that thing. And he said, yeah. there's just these loads of little, tiny, almost crumbs for, for quite a while. I assume, as you say, you know, the stages of him. But he just said what he's been reading. And he's like, but Cthulhu isn't the best part of Lovecraft. He's like, it's a really cool yeah. part. But he's like, it's just something about the universe he creates. But it's not like, you know, it's not like Star Wars where every single release connects to every other release ever. It's not like that. He said, there's just this universe where mm. things seem to happen, and occasionally they connect. Think about it this way. The way to sort of deal, think about it is, imagine the Marvel Universe, right? So if you're watching the MCU, but you're not actually following the Avengers, you're following someone well off onto the periphery. The extras. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. And that's what makes Lovecraft so fascinating, is because his stories all exist in the same world, or at least the Cthulhu Mythos stories all exist in the same world. And what they are connected by is a couple of things, basically like a pantheon of gods, mm -hmm. these these otherworldly beings. And it, these, again, need to be sort of defined again in eras. So during uh, Lovecraft's writing, they're just sort of like the, um, the, the other gods mm -hmm. is what they are, really. And that's where you get like Cthulhu and there's a bunch of others. I've got, you know, so some of my favourites, I love the, the wording. So you've got like Cthulhu, and you know, it's one of those again. If you look at these, right, you got to, it's it's useful to have something like Siri, you know, say this for me, sort of thing. Um, you have Cthulhu, Nyrelethetep, Yogsathoth, Azathoth, and you know, uh, and then they've got Shogoths as their servants. And it's this sort of idea that the, the, there's these ancient beings, and they're not gods in the in the sense that we would you know uh, understand as a creator. They're just these interdimensional ancient beings that used to rule the world and rule space. And they've fallen into some sort of like deep sleep that's close to death, but not quite. And so they exist on the periphery of our universe. But every now and then they sort of um, seep in. Something will seep in. So, for example, with Cthulhu, uh, the story of Cthulhu, um, or actually the call of Cthulhu is it's called, is literally about there's a there's a it's a story inside a story inside a story so it's three different stories sort of like easter egg or what they call it, like a russian doll mm -hmm. inside each other 
and it's about this idea that there is a place where there is a being called Cthulhu and Cthulhu is this great monster, huge flabby giant sea monster whose face is like a giant octopus with tentacles, but has bat wings and all this other stuff, but he's sleeping. And in his sleeping, actually he might be waking because he's sending out psychic rays. And so people are having these artists and these other people are having these visions or going insane and all this other stuff. And then there's another story that's part of it. That's these detectives are going into, I think the Bayou. So I think it's Louisiana. And they're looking into this, this, this cult, this cult of Cthulhu, and they witness one of these rituals. And it's all interwoven, but like it's a small story, mm-hmm. all in all. Like at no point does Cthulhu raise out of the water and destroy the world. Like you never get the payoff. Like it's never like, you know, Thanos never turns up, sort of thing. <laughs> um, so you never actually meet Cthulhu, but you just get these things. But there's, I'm, I'm listening to one at the moment, uh, The Whisper in Darkness. And the whole story is letter correspondence between these two people where one guy's a professor, it's just two professors or two uh, scholars talking. And one of them lives out in the sticks and he's like, I keep hearing stuff in the woods and I think I'm being stalked. And then it sort of grows. And I've heard voices. My, my dogs are being attacked. I'm hearing these creatures. And then he starts sending evidence of like the voices and he refers to Yogg-Sothoth and Azathoth. And he's like, they keep chanting these rituals. And now I find out they've got human um, members of their team as well. I, I believe they're the Shogoths. And you go, oh, what the fuck's a Shogoth? And so you, you read all that. And then you read the mount- at the Mountains of Madness, uh, which is um, an Arctic expedition that finds out that there's an entire city existing under the ice. And they're attacked by Shogoths. And they describe them in that book. And they're these sort of like weird tube things with tentacles coming out the feet. And they've got wings and multiple eyes and all this other stuff. And you're like, right, well, that thing is now living in a forest somewhere in Vermont. You know, and so they start to sort of like you you realize that these things just exist on the periphery and you're never sort of you're terrified because the the, the horror comes from the fact that the 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 show goths they interact with us, you know, they exist. But there are characters that sort of just exist on the periphery. If if Cthulhu was to wake up, you know, as it is foretold, he wouldn't give a monkeys about this. He's not good. He's not bad. His 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 job is to destroy anything and, and bring about the rule of these elder gods again. And that's it. Doesn't care about us. We are we are an insignificant part of that. And the same for the rest of these gods. Like we are just part of this cosmos. And that that sort of like comes down to the philosophy of of, of Lovecraft, where he looked out his window. You know, I tell you, he was big in astronomy. Like, you know, you get astronomers that look out and you go, oh, look at that vast open space, all the opportunities for exploration and all those things that could exist in that universe. That's amazing. Lovecraft looks out there and goes, it's horror. There are things out there that are going to kill us and don't care. We are insignificant in this wider universe of nothingness. <laughs> You're like, wow, it's no wonder you don't get invited to parties. <laughs> <clears throat> but that was his heart. That's the point. Like these things exist, but they do not give a shit about us. They don't care. Um, and that's why it's so fast. But he said, they just keep turning up. Mm. Um, and it's, so th- it's, it's like an anthology. The mythos is like an anthology of like, Oh, people have interacted with these beings. Um, and I've got like, some of the stories here. The mythos was oh, the mountains of madness, whispering darkness, uh, call of Cthulhu. Um, uh, and all, I think even, even some of like, the Randolph Carter stories put put onto it. Uh, Dunwich Horror. I think what else we got? But yeah, there's, there's loads. They just sort of keep slotting into this idea, but it's because the, the, one of the great things about these stories is like the, your protagonist or the person you, you know that sort of the story is about often has no idea. Mm-hmm. 
Like it's their introduction. It's, it's, it's like the X-Files. You're getting a snippet of information at each one. And because you've read them all, you're able to see this like quilt, patchwork quilt of information about these, these intergalactic, interdimensional creatures. But if you're so, some poor sod who's coming across these in, you know, in whatever part, in the forest of Vermont or in the Arctic Circle, like you're just getting this glimpse mm. and it's it's that's where the horror is and that sort of thing. So it's it's fascinating this whole mythos and these creatures. Um yeah, that that's sort of the mythos side of it. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, and, and with that as well because one of the things that uh Reese was saying to me he was like um this might be an over exaggeration due to my poor memory, but it was something like he was like some stories are literally like I think his short is like a few pages, like seven pages or something. And then he said one yeah. one of his longest stories is only am I right? I think it's only like ninety pages or something. Like his he doesn't or am I misremembering that? I seem to remember. The, 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 this, he's got a couple of novellas. Like the the, the Mountains of Madness is probably about one hundred and forty pages. Yeah, but um, that's like his longest. He never writes. Yes, his longest. Yeah, yeah. Charles. The case of Charles X Ward's about ninety. Like he's never written a full blown novel. Yeah. Novel. I mean, yeah, no, his shortest story is half a page. Oh right, I, I was actually under. Yeah. I was. I, th- yeah. I was thinking that. I was like, surely it would be one page or something like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's got one called Azathoth, which is literally just about the god, which is about half a page. Um, he's also got one a really short one called um, which we'll get onto but it's part of oh yeah Nyrolethotep sorry he's got one called Nyrolethotep which is like a page um, but the, all of this is dictated in in fact I'm going to find him is dictated in um, the Necronomicon yes so this is the other part like not only do the not only do the monsters or the creatures provide the interconnectivity of this universe. There's other things as well. So he has created a, a, a fake university, the Miskatonic University in the town of Arkham. So if you ever want to know where Arkham Asylum came from, Lovecraft, Lovecraft. Genius. Um, and so Miskatonic University, you get all these poor sods that come from Mis- Like If you ever were to get, you know, a scholarship at Miskatonic University, you'd be like, eh, I'm good. Thanks. I'm going, going to Harvard. <laughs> um, yeah, so this Miskatonic University has a lot of these scholars, and one of the things that Miskatonic has is a copy of the Necronomicon. And so the Necronomicon is... Uh, I'm going to find the damn thing. It's basically a book, and it was a book that was written uh, by the mad Arab, um, Ab- Al- Al- um, Abdul Ab- Al-Hazred. That's it, Abdul Al-Hazred is this guy, and he was basically this Arab, ancient Arab scholar uh, who... Um, started to get into the occult and experienced all these things and basically documented it all. Right. And and then this book, the original is destroyed, but then they find out there's been copies and it's got translated into these different languages. And so they, uh, I think the one at Miskatonic is a Greek version, but there's, there's a Latin version and a German version somewhere. Um, and it basically sort of lists out all these gods and these creatures and then the rituals that can be used to bring them about and all this other stuff. Um and so this Necronomicon gets referenced throughout, you know, like it will get thrown in as a bit of a, are you listening? You know, sort of as a sort of a reference. And um, that's one of those other things. So, you know, literally the Whispering Darkness one I'm listening to at the moment, like the guy, the prof- one of the professors goes to Miskatonic. And at one point, some of the stuff that the, um, the guy he's talking to references, and he goes, oh, I better check that. I believe that's in the uh, in one of these books. And he lists out these books. And one of them is the Necronomicon. Right. Um, so it's, it's stuff like that, which is really cool. So it's sort of, you know, it's, an, it's one of these sort of, it's Easter eggs in a shared universe before anyone else was doing it. You're like, oh, this is really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking that as well. It, it's almost, 
it is the more you delve into it the more clever it is and it's things like the amount of influence like just the name uh sort of uh, necronomicon i mean the amount of things i mean there's a band i like called necrogoblicon and that's obviously yeah. right. there's in evil dead whatever the book of the dead is in that that is cool that is literally the necronomicon i thought it yeah. was and then there's loads of other books basically anytime you get some sort of crazy show normally a horror and you've got a book of the dead that's made out of the skin of trapped souls or something it's called yeah. obviously necro i think comes from latin dead or something along those lines and then nomicon or those sort of things so it's like there are so many threads of his work in popular culture and out of interest with his sort of his three phases mm. was he what well, because he died when he was only 47 so for a writer that's quite young especially because you know you think a lot of the time writers can live to you know when you're old and you can't do anything with your life the only thing you can left to do is sit yeah. in the room and type so th- in theory writers a lot of the time can live quite uh, long lives and when his work stopped is there like a clear time where you can see the work like, i'm trying to get at, like unfinished work essentially you get certain authors and you know you get um i think jane austen was one where there's like her last book was like kind of unfinished is there that sort of thing with Lovecraft? there is yeah there's there's a couple that people have sort of you read it and you think this you know because so when he died there were unpublished works um but that wasn't uncommon because he wasn't famous and he wasn't successful so a lot of his work actually didn't got got first publication after his death mm-hmm. And there are ones where you go, oh, yeah, this is the finished article. Like, you know, it was published after his death, but it was clearly ready and it's, it's very good. There are others that you read and you do sort of go, eh, I've read early versions of them. And you sort of go, yeah, OK, this was probably a first or second draft. Mm. And you can, t- you know, it's obviously towards the end of his, uh, his life. <clears throat> and that's where St. Joshi's come in, though, and tied some of that stuff up. But, um, yeah, it was um, uh, August Derleth and... Uh, and Clark Ashton Smith they were the two guys that really pushed for uh, Lovecraft's legacy after he died and published a lot of his stuff actually um, and and so yeah without them we wouldn't really be having this conversation like he would have fallen into obscurity which you know which is fascinating to me because of how like you said the impact he's had on today's um, I mean you, you think of a modern horror writer some of the biggies Stephen King, Clive Barker, Dean Koontz, you know, all those sort of big names. Like all of them, you can read some of their books and go, yeah, okay. it, it is a really prime example. Tommy Knockers from Stephen, you know, um, even like Hellraiser uh, or Hellbound Heart, you know, the, the Lovecraftian um, elements of those stories is, you know, it's clear. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating to see that he sort of, you know, he almost, almost didn't have that, that influence, but luckily he did. Hmm. do we know why these two people were they like mates of his did they own yeah. the flat he was in oh they were okay. no no they were they were they were, they were, they were, they were they were devotees of him they were cor- they were corresponding they, they the were many often... people letters and stuff yeah right. so he, he would he would send them versions and and uh when he died they i think they went and got a lot of his stuff and and you know the unpublished material and stuff so they believed in him it's one of those weird ones where they're like no he's good and he, people need to see this and and, and you know, they thought more than that they thought there was money to be made in it and there clearly was mm. um but yeah it, it's it's a fascinating sort of you know um little bit of fortuitous that you know he managed to get to get into that but you say but i want to get back to the sort of this idea of the shared universe because one of the things that's interesting is and i didn't know this till recently he has like reoccurring characters mm-hmm. uh, and there's one in particular now there's a there's a story called the statement of randolph carter 
and uh, it's it, it's a, and this is another thing that he does. He does a lot of first person stories, and the statement of Randolph Carter is told by a guy called Randolph Carter about an event where he and um, a colleague and friend um, have found this catacomb, I suppose. Um, and between them, like you know, they go and they investigate it, and his friend goes down there into this catacomb, and they've got this like phone, and um, the end of the story is. Carter stood at the end of this phone line in this graveyard, listening, and his friends going on down these tunnels. He's going, oh, "It's bloody scary down here. You won't believe the things I'm seeing." It's it's almost like everything's off screen. He's just describing it, and then all of a sudden it goes it goes quiet. And Carter's like, "You know, you fool, come out, come on out!" And the voice just comes back on this phone. He's like, "You know, no, you are the fool. Your friend is dead." And you're like, "What the hell is down in this pit?" It's a great little story because it's really you know it really builds up tension and stuff. But it was only recently that I found out that Randolph Carter is one of his prime reoccurring characters. Okay. So it's um, the, the dream quest of the unknown Kadath is Randolph Carter is the person having the dream. Okay. And that's mm. him in his early twenties. And then you have the statement of Randolph Carter, which is later. And then there's these stories about almost like a time loop where Randolph goes uh, the silver key and through the gates of the silver key. And they, one of them is about him having a flashback and seeing the future and this other stuff. And then he gets taken away by, um, aliens, basically. Um, and then there's this thing that I think it's through the gates of the silver key is, is a story, a group of people are coming to, um, divvy up Randolph Carter's estate because he's believed to be dead. Uh, and this one person turns up who's supposed to be sort of like a, they call him an Asian psychic or from the dark continent or one of those other, you know, politically incorrect descriptors. But they keep focusing them on focusing on him and his, how his physique is different and how he wears strange clothes to cover his hands and all this other stuff. And basically, it's then revealed that this is actually the mind of Randolph Carter in this other alien body. And you're like, what the hell has gone on for him to be? <laughs> what? Like, no, there's a story missing here. Come on, Lovecraft, like fill in the gaps. But it's again, like that's the great thing of this. It's like you know, he's like, no, 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 screw you, figure it out yourself. Like something weird and horrific has happened here but you're not going to know what the details are. You know, I love all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It is mental, like, hearing about some of the, uh, some of the aspects. Like, I, I assume not, but have you read, like, all Lovecraft, or is there so much it's impossible to read? Like, what no, quantity you, are we talking? You, you could read all of it. it, it, it I wouldn't, probably wouldn't want to. I wouldn't recommend all of it. Yeah, there are, there are <laughs> stories that you'd go, eh. I, I've probably read a good portion, and there's more. There's, but there's stories I'm like, I've really got to read that. Like, I want to go back and read, like, at the Mountains of Madness. Um Last year, I really sort of I read, quite intently read uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is great. But they're like they're good. But I always find his short stories are more punchy. Um, and, and I go back to there's a couple I go back to quite a lot, um, just because they're short and they're punchy and they're good fun and, and that sort of thing. Um, Call of Cthulhu is one. You know, I do like the Call of Cthulhu. It's it's, it's a little longer, but um, the ones, there's one called Pickman's Model. And it's another one of those first-person stories. It's basically a story about a guy who is recounting to his friend um, about this artist that you met. And they go to this art event, and there's all these people, and, oh, they've done a landscape, and, oh, they've done some architecture. And there's this one guy, he's like, he's drawn cadavers being eaten by these foul creatures. And everyone's like, yeah, he's messed up, this dude. You know, but they're so realistic. These paintings are so realistic. He's so talented. And everyone's like, why does he paint this? macabre um you know depictions of death and murder you know this violence and this this, this sort of uh, depravity so this guy who's telling the story so i want to know more about him so he goes to meet him and got in this artist called pitman 
and he says, well, you know, he says, look, I've got a studio and I, I you know, it's all, all the places, locales in my, fo- in my um, uh, paintings are real. You know, I go there and I paint them and they say, oh, okay, so that's how you do it. It says, but your imagination, these creatures that you paint, they're, they're, they're fascinating. He's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, imagination, mag- great thing. And they become friends and eventually Pickman sort of says, look, I'll tell you, look, come around to my house and I'll show you my studio. And so he does. And Pickman takes him into a studio. And it's upstairs. And it's like a typical artist studio. And he picks up a canvas and says, right, now we're going to go back. We're going to go to where I'm painting my next picture. And they go into a sub-basement. And basically, he, there's a tunnel or a well. Sorry, there's a well thing. And, and, and Pickman says, like, whatever you do, don't move. And that, right. And he says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to show you something, but don't move. And so he calls out, and this creature comes out, and it's a ghoul, like a proper ghoul. Like it, the way it's described, it's sort of like it's it's gaunt and it looks skeletal, but it's sort of it's, but it's exactly what he's been painting. And it comes up, and he sort of you know it converses with Pikmin and then buggers off. And basically, the realization is everything he's been painting is real. And mm. then and then it's sort of the, the final note is that Pikmin's gone missing. So the story's happening, I think, three weeks after Pickman's disappearance. And this guy's going, like, I think I know what's happened to him. <laughs> but the police aren't listening to me and everyone thinks I'm nuts. But I've seen these things and I can't sleep now because I know that these ghoulish creatures exist. And, you know, there's, and again, like, you know, it's, it's told in first person. I did it as a podcast, actually, a couple of years ago. as a horror sort of like as a Halloween story i think i listened to that yeah really enough because i remember listening to it and you got i, I when i listen to your podcast that's the only one i didn't finish because i mm. listened to it and after about 10 minutes i was like i don't know what the fuck is going on yeah. like it was all the, because of the way obviously mm. i didn't when i listened i i saw it said something about lovecraft and i think that was probably around the time reese was reading lovecraft yeah and i was like oh i'll learn a bit about lovecraft and then you obviously started reading it and i was like this language like i wasn't expecting it. i was like driving to work and you know when you're not you've got to put some you've got to put your head into it there's yeah. two kinds of podcasts there's yeah, the podcasts yeah. people talk about movies that you've seen and you can <laughs> vaguely listen there's ones where people talk to like an astrophysicist and you're like if you miss one word nothing will make sense that's it and that's kind of what it was like yeah so i do I love those. I love his, some of his stories. Now I could I could list a bunch off. Like you know, um, uh, the Beyond is a good one, uh, which is where sort of they use if you 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 can be tuned into certain vibrations that allow you to see um, uh, things that exist around us that you can't see with your regular eyes and regular senses. And when you do, not only can you see them, but they see you. So there's a risk to it, and it's a, that's a really good one. Um. um Rats in the Walls, The Hound's a good one. But uh, I'll tell you a good one that's that's a bit long. It's Herbert West Reanimator, which was obviously made into a film. A lot of these were made into films. So there's been a load of sort that of That was going to be a question of mine a bit, because I yeah, know yeah. one or two of the films, but yeah. Uh, and, and it's one of the... Herbert West Reanimator is a weird story because humour isn't... Bit, you know, if you're reading Lovecraft, you're not looking for chuckles. Like you're not here for the guffaws. Um, but Herbert, Herbert West Reanimator is kind of funny in a weird sort of like sardonic way, like they reanimate the dead and they're like, well, we better move on then. Cause we're going to get found out here. Off we go. And they go to the next <laughs> location. And there's all this, so there's this sort of like, yeah, <coughs> this um, traveling from place to place. Uh, and then basically fucking up when they're there and going, all right, off to the next one. Um, but it's a great story with a great ending. And the ending of that book is fantastic. I won't read, ruin the woods by the end of that book because that, that, that story because that's got a really good one but yeah no the, the 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 good thing about these stories i find is they're so revisitable like i mm. can just go back to these and, and sort of you know you do go like what is this like you know i 
Um, and I have, I do have favorite shadow of Rinsmouth is another good one where, um, he, he has, you know, we have, we said about like his first person stories in the accounts that he does. Um, and then he has, like I say, this collection, which I've, I've, I've referred to as his, um, fucking non-human things. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, basically like is you've got the Dunwich horror, which basically you, you, you get, um, or Dunwich horror, if you're American, um, recounts the story of this, this boy who is growing incredibly fast and seems to be incredibly intelligent, but is very deformed. And then it, you find out that he is birthed of an alien encounter or an interdimensional alien encounter, uh, which is weird facts concerning uh, the late Arthur German, which is obviously about apes and then shadow of Rinsmouth, which is the history of a small village copulating with fish people. Um, yeah. It gets, you know, it, <laughs> it never, it's one of those things where it's sort of, it's never expressly head on. It's never said, it's not like, and then they started doing it. It's just sort of like over generations, people's features started to change and the fish people started to populate the town. And you're like, well, you know how <laughs> <laughs> you're just not sort of saying it. And that's the end of part one. Thanks as always for tuning in, guys. Part two will be released next week at the usual time. But if you can't wait that long, and if you also want to support the show, please head over to patreon.com slash chat, where you will not only get part two of this chat right now, because part one and part two on Patreon were released in one go as one full unsplit episode. But in addition to that, you also get my Afterthoughts show, which I record two episodes of that a week with my girlfriend, Megan. We basically watch TV shows, movies documentaries a variety of things and then give our thoughts on them there's star wars episodes up there we've done a captain america rewatch we've watched the documentary called murder among the mormons the queen's gambit the watchman director's cut movie um witcher series one loads of them but also if you go on there right now and you're not too sure if you go on there you can get two episodes completely for free which is the witcher series one and star wars the phantom menace and both of those total about half an hour 40 minutes or so so you get a good amount of content there and if you do become a monthly supporter you'll get about 40 minutes a week of afterthoughts which is you know about two and a half three hours of extra content per month plus you get early access to any time i split things into part one and part two you'll get access to the part two a week earlier than everyone else and for this podcast next week when part two gets dropped the third part of my conversation with scott will get dropped on patreon which is all about moon night so i've released it as a kind of it'll be a separate thing but yeah please check out patreon if you haven't already take a little gander and let me know what you think if you guys would join it but there's a specific reason why you aren't looking to because either it costs too much or there's not enough on there whatever let me know i'd be interested to hear and i may even take your suggestions so to confirm this week is lovecraft next week is going to be part two of the lovecraft chat and then next week is going to be it was recorded at the same time as my chat with scott but we decided to talk about moon Knight, and we spoke about it for like 40 minutes almost uninterrupted so part three will be that after that i have got a episode recording due next week with a gentleman named matthew b lloyd who if anyone listens to my star wars podcast and subscribes to comics in motion will know that he has a show on there every other monday for classic comics which is comics from the golden age which is like the 40s and 50s and things, um, which is a really, really interesting show. And he actually has some Star Wars comics from or newspaper clippings, basically, which were out 
1978, I think it was. So it was like a year after the original Star Wars came out, before Empire Strikes Back was a thing. So he's going to come on the show. We're going to talk about some of the really old school Star Wars comics and whatnot. Um, and also I've got a chat recording due the day after that, so on the Tuesday next week, uh, with a gentleman who is an actor who does a lot of on-stage performances. And I'd be really interested to hear sort of how it is different acting in a film to on st- on stage. And I think he's met Dame Judi Dench as well, which is quite cool. So there's lots of little bits and pieces here uh, of that. I've got other recordings due in the future as well. In March, I should be organising recording with three different individuals who have had very different hands in Star Wars content in very different ways. So I'm very excited about those guys. Um, but if you do support on Patreon in the next week, I am putting up a uh, guest list of all of the confirmed guests, all of the recordings I've already got, and then all of the ones that are kind of in the ether, which are soon to be recorded. So you get a good idea of what you can expect from Genuine Chit Chat going forward. So I've plugged my Patreon, I've mentioned my other show styles, Comics and Canon, and I've talked about what's coming up. So I'm not going to, you know, ramble at you guys any longer. Thank you as always for listening. It genuinely means the world to me, the amount of you guys that are still listening through the pandemic and all those sort of things, as well as all you guys who support me on Patreon, because it makes a massive difference to me. And I just want to say thank you for that. So aside from all of those things, guys, I really hope you stay safe. Please contact Scott of 20th Century Geek. Let him know how much you enjoyed him being on this and that you can't wait for next week. And also, guys, I just want to give you all a hug because you're all really nice people for listening to my show. Anyway, I will talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much.